0: Well, um, I have chosen uh, this passage from uh, Deuteronomy uh, because I believe it helps us to answer a question that we encounter a great deal when uh, we want to talk about mission or we want to be faithful to God in mission. The question is, what does it mean to be called to mission? And I think that is uh, especially uh, important to reflect uh, on a Mission Sunday uh, like we are doing uh, today. Now, there are m- many uh, passages of Scripture I could have chosen, uh, but I decided to choose uh, uh, this one uh, uh, because it's got a particular emphasis that I think is a helpful correction to uh, perhaps uh, the common passages that we read about mission that uh, uh, talk about a mission as a particular activity or doing something Uh, in uh, in particular, or giving to a certain cause. And all those, I think, are important emphasis of mission. But I think this one does give us something a little more. Uh, uh, All these are important parts of our mission, uh, but I think we need uh, just uh, a little bit more of emphasis on what we are going to talk about uh, today. Now, this uh, passage is set at a time when the Israelites have just been delivered from Egypt. They are preparing to go into the Promised Land. And Moses has reminded them the great things that God has done for them in delivering them and bringing them on the verge of entering Canaan. He reminds them what God has done for them and uh, the law that God has given them. And if they practice this law diligently, God would, through them, provoke the neighboring nations to awe of this uh, Hebrew God. And so this uh, passage tells them what kind of people they were called to be. Primarily two things. What it means to be a people of God, people who are entrusted with the knowledge of the living God, and people who are challenged to live out that knowledge in the sight of the nations. It is a challenge for the people of God in every age to rethink our vocations in the light of the contemporary situations. And given our particular context, how do we engage so that we bring most glory to God? I think that is one of the challenges of this passage. Secondly, and this is a reminder to the Israelites, that there was a universal goal to the very existence of God's people. There was a particular goal for the existence of Israel. And what God did in Israel, for Israel and through Israel, was understood to be ultimately for the benefit of other nations. The things that God was doing in Israel was not just for them, but so that God might speak to the other nations as well so this passage starts very much like uh, Micah, uh, chapter 6, verse 8. It asks uh, a similar question. And now, O Lord, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him? Very similar to Micah 6, verse 8, where we read, what does the Lord require of you? And the answer given in uh, the uh, Micah passages act justly, love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is a sense uh, in, in, in which uh, Micah and uh, Moses here in this passage wants us to go back to the basics. What is it that the Lord would have us do or would have us be if all these things that He has done amongst, uh, amongst us are meant for the benefit? of these other nations. There's a sense of here wanting to get to the basics. The claim of God is not esoteric, Moses seems to be saying to the Israelites, but fundamentally simple. It is simple because there is only one God, and he has made his moral will known with unmistakable clarity. And so in verse 12, he asks this question, What does the Lord require of you? And he says, what the Lord requires of you is to fear the Lord, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve him, to observe all that he has commanded you for your own good. Obedience is good for you as uh, through it you will see the fulfillment of God's plans for your lives. Now, I don't know whether you noticed that this passage actually starts with... uh, Uh, fear the Lord, and it also ends with uh, fear the Lord. Fear the Lord is not a kind of fear of uh, dreading uh, a powerful force, but a grateful recognition of our absolute dependence on a sovereign God uh, who, although his utterance spells the difference between life and death, but is also accessible to us, and he loves us. So to fear the Lord means to walk in all his ways, or to do what you see the Lord doing. That's what it means to fear the Lord. According to John Stott, mission is everything in the world that the church has been called to do. And simply put, according to this passage, mission is walking in all his ways, doing what you see the Lord doing. That's what mission is. If we are to follow what the Lord is doing, we need to know first who he is, secondly, what he does, and thirdly, what he requires of us. And it seems to me that the structure of this uh, passage actually gives us these answers. First of all, who is the Lord? And you'd find that from verses 14 and 17. First of all, in verse 14, it says, To the Lord, your God, belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Now whatever deities may have surrounded the Israelites, they are being reminded here that the whole cosmos and all reality belong to the Lord. The heavens, even the highest heavens belong to him. There is absolutely nothing up there and down here that does not belong to him. That is the starting point. And if you are going to be involved in mission, we need to understand, who is this Lord who is sending us to mission? He is not just another deity. He is the cosmic owner. He is the owner of everything. That is our starting point. And then in verse 17, as if to complement that, We read, For the Lord your God is God of gods, and the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. And so here we are reminded, it's not just the natural order that the Lord is Lord over. Even all spiritual reality, whatever other spiritual realities that exist, They are subject to Yahweh, to this God of Israel. He is not simply a God for Israel. Not simply the Christian God, as if there are others. But the supreme God, God over law, he has no rivals in the cosmos. This is the God who is setting us. Because you see, for Israelites, it was necessary for them to recognize him for what, for what he is. Let them consider Yahweh. They must recognize his greatness, the greatness of Yahweh, their God and their overlord. It's not politically correct in a 21st century Britain and, uh, and Europe to talk about the uh, um, e- exclusivity of this God. It's becoming unfashionable even among some Christians to walk uh, to talk in this in this manner but he is the one who not only possesses the heavens that they can see but the heavens that declare the glory of God the greater unknown. nothing is outside his scope the, the whole of what they see and what they cannot see, the great unknown, belongs to him. What others speak of as the dwelling place of the gods actually belongs to him. He is the Lord in the heavens. He owns the earth also. He owns and controls all that is in them. He is the supreme and overall. I think one of the contemporary trends of our mission today is the whole question our pluralism. It's one of the contemporary trends that threatens to to swallow us up, and we must vigorously resist. Because, you see, pluralism is not simply an acknowledgement that there is a plurality of faith that we know, and that is a fact. But pluralism is itself an ideology, and insists that every religion has, has its own independent validity. And that all religions have equal access and uh, equal right to our respect. Pluralism condemns as sheer arrogance every attempt to convert anybody, let alone everybody, and dismisses world evangelization as as wholly unacceptable. So, how do we respond to this challenge of uh, pluralism? I suggest with a great humility. And with no tinge of superiority, we must continue to affirm that the God who is supreme and overall has revealed himself supremely through Jesus Christ. In Jesus' birth, God became man and dwelt uh, amongst us. In his death, he died for our sins. In his resurrection, he conquered death and is uniquely competent to save. Nobody else possesses this. Qualifications. So we may talk about Alexander the Great. Or maybe Charles the Great. Perhaps about Napoleon the Great. But not Jesus the Great. Because you see, Jesus is not the Great. Jesus is the only. Jesus has no rivals. Jesus has no successors. This is the supreme God with whom we have to do. It is the God who has called us, the God who is inviting us to mission. Now look at uh, verse 17, uh, the latter part, 17b. It says that uh, God shows no partiality He does not take bribes. He is utterly fair and just in his dealings with the nations. He is the one who judges all equally. He does not regard anyone with favoritism or accept bribes and softness. Putting one in a favored position against another, he is absolutely just and fair for he is the one who is above all. He is the kind of deity who cannot be manipulated through religious techniques for our selfish purposes. It follows that the worship of Yahweh must be radically different from cows. and the right postures and sacrifices for those cults that ensure that we are being heard. A reminder of the Hebrews um, verse 28 and I read this for you therefore we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and fear for our God is a consuming fire this God shows no partiality he is just we need to worship him in reverence and in fear So you want to walk in his ways? This is the God with whom we have to do. This is the God who is sending us to mission. And if you are going to respond to him, we need to understand, we need to know who he is. But secondly, if you are going to be involved in mission, we need to know if you are going to walk in his ways and follow in his ways, what does the Lord do? And we, we see that in verse 15 and 18. First of all, verse 15. Yes, the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. Notice it is making a contrast between verse 14, where uh, Moses uh, reminds them, To the Lord your God belongs the heavens. And then in verse 15 he says, Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. The wonder is that uh, such a God of this cosmic and universal ownership that you've talked about. That this God should have focused his attention on such insignificant ancestors of insignificant Israel. Now, we don't have time to look back at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, but if you, if you did, uh, this is what uh, you'd read, and let me just uh, read this uh, quickly for you. It says, Uh, Moses reminds them, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The God your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. And then in verse 7, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you are more numerous than other peoples. For you are the fewest of all the peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath He saw to your forefathers that He brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of the of pharaoh of Egypt. God stoops down to love his people, and He stooped down to love Israel. Israel did not deserve, and we don't deserve his love. He shows his special concern for an unlovely people. His particular acts of love are not an an expression of partiality or favoritism. He loves them for the sake of all that he has created. But who are the people on whom Yahweh has set his heart of love? Why does God love the unlovely? Because this is the nature of love. And also because in loving, the, in loving the unlovely Israel, it is for the sake of the rest of the unlovely world. The calling of Israel as that of Abraham has had its ultimate goal that all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. we praise God that he has loved and, and, and lovely people like we are. And yet in spite of this greatness or possibly because of it, this is a remarkable fact that he had delighted in Israel and he loved them. If we are to be involved in a mission and respond to the call of mission, we need to understand this love of God we are also loved by Him. John 3:16. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only Son, that those who believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Ephesians 2:4. Because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. 1 John, chapter 4, verse 10. This is love, that we Uh, that we loved God, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for us, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of him who loved us and gave himself for us, Galatians 2 verse 20. And so we too are loved by this God We too, therefore, in the same way have our full part in him, and should fear him, serve him, cleave to him, and swear by his name, because he is our sole God. I wonder whether you see this tension and balance between these two verses, uh, verse 14 and verse 15. The tension of a universal God in verse 14, and one who... Uh, loves a particular people in verse 15. You see, we need both and we need to have this uh, uh, this tension and this balance uh, for these two verses. Chris, Wright, in his com- commentary on Deuteronomy, hi- highlights this tension. And he says that we cannot stress one without the other. Otherwise, if we, if we stress the universalism of God at the uh, exclusion of his particular love, we end up with unbiblical universalism, therefore blurring the distinction between the redeemed people, the covenant people of God, or the church, or the Christians, and the nations. But on the other hand, if we stress God's particular love for his covenant people, we could end up with an uh, equally unbiblical exclusivism whereby God has turned his back on the rest of the world. The covenant people of God are a sign and anticipation of God's transforming purposes for humanity. And I think that danger is as with us today. But sometimes we think uh, that God is only interested in what is happening in the four walls of the church. God is the God of the nations. I don't know um, whether you, uh, some of you, watched the um, uh, the jo- uh, Jonathan. I think it's called Friday Night with Jonathan Ross. I don't know how many of you watched that. And uh, I was interested in uh, 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 watching that, particularly because Adrumah, uh, who used to be the political um, uh, commentator for the for the BBC, uh, was being uh, interviewed by Jonathan Ross. And uh, you know, Adrumah has uh, written. Uh, recently um, a history of uh, modern Britain. And I was interested in, uh, in what Jonathan would, uh, would ask uh, uh, Adrum uh, about that. And uh, uh, Adrum uh, in his book, and I haven't read it, uh, uh, is comparing uh, modern Britain and Britain after the war. And one of the things uh, uh, Jonathan uh, uh, Ross uh, pointed out is that a Britain is uh, being a wealthier nation today is uh, so much uh, unhappier as a people uh, than uh, the relatively uh, unwealthy Britain after the war. And uh, Jonathan was uh, wanted to find out from uh, from Andrew why is this that a nation uh, that is so much wealthier today is so so much uh, um, unhappier. Um, And uh, I didn't expect that uh, Andrew was going to respond and, uh, uh, you know, say that uh, perhaps uh, Britain of those days uh, trusted in God more or something related to that. And I don't want to suggest that that is the reason. But I did wonder whether it is connected with what we are talking about uh, today, that our modern world is full of uh, religious and secular gods. I want to quote from an IFS colleague called Avinosa Ramachandra when he says that we in the West especially need to be alert to false gods that hide behind fancy names such as market forces, national security, and technological progress. We need to unmask these false gods and expose their feet of clay and show our nations that enslavement and dehumanization are the inevitable outcome of false worship, a task that calls for discernment and moral courage. Now, verse, uh, verse eight, uh, 18 um, uh, continues uh, with that theme. It's the second answer to the question, what does the Lord do? We read in verse 18, he defends the cause of the fatherless." and the widow, and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. God executes a judgment for the weak and vulnerable, and the marginalized in society. These are the people who are likely to be pushed to the wall, given their precarious situation. Yahweh has a special concern for such people, a particular bias towards them. He takes a stand on their behalf. He especially ensures that justice is found for those who are the least important in society, those who are unable to help themselves and have no one to defend them, those who have no fathers, those who are widows, those who are resident aliens, those who have no one to protect them. And what uh, God is saying here is that the measurement of Israel's spiritual health as a society will be the way they treated the poor and the vulnerable in the midst. Now, if this didn't come from Scripture, I think we would say, well, this is a leftist way of looking at things. God's people are to be known for their concern for those whose social and economic position exposes them to exploitation and oppression. Worship and social justice went hand in hand, while religious idolatry and social oppression were closely associated. When Israel forgot Yahweh and went after other gods, inevitably they forgot the weak and the vulnerable. And I think that is a reminder we need uh, today. God loves justice and this love is active and issues in his putting right situations of injustice. God's people follow him in doing justice and restoring to the community those who are excluded through calamity, deprivation or or calamity. The implication of this biblical vision is that the growing disparities between the rich and the poor and the indifference to the plight of the poor indicate that a nation is in the grip of God other than Yahweh. So a Christian witness to the character and purpose of Yahweh, or the purpose of Christ, includes social and political action on behalf of the poor. Now, uh, we don't have a lot of time to talk about uh, this challenge of a global injustice. But I think it is one of the contemporary challenges in uh, in mission today. Our world has become a very unequal world. I don't want to bore you with uh, statistics here, but you only have to look at some of the reports that are out there. And I, uh, I looked at, for example, the 2005 UNDP Human Development Report. Let me just uh, uh, read you some of the statistics. The world's richest 500 individuals, and quite a number of them are from this country, although most of them are from uh, the U.S. The world's richest 500 individuals have a combined wealth of the poorest 416 million. One-fifth of humanity, that's about one billion people, One-fifth of humanity lives in countries where many people think nothing of spending two dollars or one pound a day on a cappuccino. Another fifth or the bottom billion of humanity survive on less than one dollar a day and live in countries where children die for want of a simple anti-mosquito bed net. If you consider aid and debt as well as trade, the financial flows in the world are not from the rich to the poor. They are actually the other way around, from the poor to the rich. The rich countries live on the backs of the global poor. Now, I'm not saying that just because I come from Africa. Now, if it makes anyone feel a little better this morning... Some of the poor countries are also some of the most unequal societies in the world. And Kenya, where I come from, I think is one example of a very unequal society. And uh, if you ask me uh, part of the reason why there were those disturbances after the uh, elections in December, I think that is part of the reason, the inequality that we find in that land. But this tells us that there's some, something wrong going on in our societies. It's not just because of the declining um, uh, church attendance. Uh, some of you may have read uh, the research recently by Christian uh, Research uh, suggesting that uh, by 2050 uh, the Muslims uh, will be um, having higher congregations than. Uh, um, uh, the, Christian, uh, the Christian churches. What has gone wrong with our society? Some of you will say maybe this is a, um, um, an indication that with the evil and ungodliness we witness these are the last days and it could well be. Or perhaps this may suggest a failure on our part. Is there a sense in which we have become too comfortable? where we have lost our confidence in the ways of God, in the word of God, we have become intimidated by our culture. Or have we lost our softness and light in the society? I think it's John Stott who puts it this way, that if you see a piece of meat decaying or rotting, you don't blame the meat, do you? No. You ask yourself, Where is the thought? And so when you see a society decaying, you don't ask, What is wrong with the society? You ask yourself, Where is the thought? Where is the church? You go into a dark room, you don't blame darkness. Being there. That is what happens when there is no light. And the question to ask is where is the light? Where are the Christians in society? Finally, from that passage, what does the Lord require? We have seen uh, who the Lord is. We have seen uh, what the Lord does. Now we want to look at uh, briefly what does He require? Verse 16 and verse 19. Verse 16 reads, uh, circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer." So, following on from verse 15, that declares how God has set His affection on Israel. What does he call them to do? If you look at verse 15, you might uh, uh, think uh, that he is asking them to celebrate. The Lord has set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all nations as it is today. How are they going to respond to that privilege that they have in being chosen by Yahweh. Verse 16 tells them how they should respond. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff necked any longer. They need to show repentance because God's judgment will start with God's people. And how do you show repentance? Very interesting in verse 19. He talks about the practical demonstration of this repentance. We are given an answer in verse 19, you are to love those uh, who are aliens for you yourselves who are aliens in Egypt. What a strange response. God tells them how much he has loved them. How he has stooped to love the unlovely. How of all the nations of the world, he has chosen them. And the response that they are asked is repentance. And the test of this repentance is that you are to love those who are aliens for you yourselves who are aliens in Egypt. If the Israelites were going to respond To this repentance, they were going to love the stranger. The people of God must have a special sensitivity towards the vulnerable and for the Israelites, towards the non-Israelites in their midst. God loved you as aliens. Imitate him by loving aliens. It is this command to love strangers we see a a third challenge to contemporary mission. And that is overcoming our narrow nationalisms. You see, there's nothing wrong with nationalism. Nationalism has a positive side to it. Loving our nation and our culture. But you see, it has a negative side to it as well. Because you see, we can cease to be critical of our nation's values and actions. And what a politically incorrect thing to do in Britain today. And the country we are told is being swarmed with immigrants. We are being called as God's people to be on the forefront of protecting immigrants from discrimination and harassment from scripture. To do this we need to be freed from our insularities and waking up to the reality that we are part of the global church. The majority of the church today is actually in the south. It's in, in uh, Asia, in A- Africa and Latin America. And we are part of that church. It's only that uh, the bigger part of it is in the south. And so, That's really our family, and we need to speak on its behalf in this country. (coughs) And I think if you look at uh, what happens in the uh, Christian press, particularly one is often impressed by the strength of the voice of Christians in the West on such important issues as abortion and euthanasia. And I was once uh, listening to uh, the CEO of uh, IPPS, which is the International Planned Parenthood uh, Federation, in uh, a lecture that I was attending. And he was uh, speaking on the developments in uh, sexual and reproductive health worldwide. And he was uh, at that point decrying how powerful the Christian right is in the United States. And he was saying that when uh, Reagan, uh, and you know Reagan, uh, Republican president, became president, the money that was meant to go to UNPFA, uh, United Nations Population Fund, and IPPF, was actually cut. And, uh, uh, and, and he was saying, um, you, you know, because that the Republicans were hostage to the Christian fundamental, fundamentalists, he called them, or the Christian right. And he said that when... Uh, Clinton became president. That money was uh, released, and so they could do the IPPF work uh, and/or um, uh, around the world. And then, when George Bush, um, another Republican, became president, that money actually dried up. And at that point, he was dreading that George Bush might be re-elected, because it means that if he's re-elected. There will be no money for abortions and all the other things that IPPF uh, is uh, involved in. The, the basic thing he was saying is that the Christian right, as he called them, or the Christian fundamentalists, or indeed, as far as you are concerned, the Christians and the Christian lobby in the United States is very strong. It is so strong that actually it changes policy for the government for better or for worse. And as he said this, I I wondered about that and I said, Well, that is true. Then I was thinking, if only the so called Christian right were more pro justice and pro poor as they are pro life, imagine the influence they would have. Now I'm not saying that they should not worry about those issues of uh, abortion and euthanasia. I think those are important issues. And by the way, uh, I used to work with a Christian Medical Fellowship and who have been in the forefront of that whole debate and uh, lobbying uh, in, in this country. But there are more ethical issues that we are called to be involved in than some of those uh, um, uh, issues that we've been involved in. There are issues about uh, global justice and poverty, that we could also be involved in. Imagine the huge reverberations if American and European Christians would publicly challenge their governments on issues of free trade and human rights or disease or poverty. The fact that 30,000 children die every day needlessly. How could that be happening in the 21st century? And we are not talking about it as Christians. I know this kind of thing can be discouraging. You hear this kind of message and uh, you wonder, what do I do as an individual? Now we don't have a lot of time to explore this and uh, hopefully in your groups and uh, later in discussions you may well want to do that. Some of you are professionals and uh, academics. I think awareness. And advocacy is one of the things that we could in, uh, be involved in. Some of you be involved in lobby groups. Some of you work for organizations like tier uh, funds uh, and others that are in the forefront of uh, bringing awareness to these uh, kinds of things. The other things we can be involved in, perhaps are involvement with organizations that uh, bank on the poor, providing microcredit uh, facilities and initiatives for community development uh, amongst the poor, not just out there, but in this country. Uh, some, some of you will be involved in uh, speaking for democracy, for, for, for freedoms, and uh, challenge our cultural um, and religious beliefs and our values about uh, these issues of poverty and oppression around the world. The biggest challenge of globalization for affluent churches is to become more self-critical about our local practices, for what we do in our backyard, and particularly in the rich countries. It has global implications, and so we've got a particular ministry in that regard. Now I, I need to conclude, don't I? Now this passage reaches uh, its uh, climax in verse 20 uh, to 22. Uh, we only read up to 20, and let me just uh, uh, remind us one or two things uh, from um, those are two verses as we close. Fear the Lord, your God, and serve Him. Hold fast to Him and take your oaths in His name. He is your praise. He is your God who performed for you those great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. He is your praise. Yahweh will be the object of Israel's worship set in the context of obedience. In other words, God is acceptably praised only by those who do what Yahweh does in practical, social, ethical terms. And such ethical justice will be worked at only by those committed to, us in verse 20, to fear him, to serve him, to hold fast to Yahweh as their God. And it's not just the Old Testament that says that. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. See, it's strange talking about uh, these kinds of issues on a mission study. And yet what this passage is telling us is that mission is not primarily about going, Mission is not primarily about doing. Mission is about being. It's about being a distinctive kind of people. A counter-cultural people. A model before a skeptical world what the living God of the Bible is really like. That's what mission is. And it doesn't matter whether we remain in our place of birth, and some of you may not travel. We are all called to mission, for mission is putting our lives on the cutting edge, where God is at work. And the question we need to be asking ourselves, if you want to be involved in mission, is where is God at work in our nation today? And around the world, what are the kind of things that is doing? In this passage, God was at work, challenging the false gods of culture and religion in the marketplace, as we saw. God was at work here, seeking justice for the weak and the vulnerable. God is at work in this passage, freeing men and, 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 uh, and women, giving them new identities that transcend those of class, tribe, and nation. And what was true of Israel is also true of us today. As was read for us from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. Let me just remind ourselves of what was read to us as we close. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which, was, which were against, against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see the good deeds and glorify God in the day that he visits us. We are to be people set apart. Different from all other people. We are to be a display people. That's what God is calling us to. A showcase to the world of what it really means to be in covenant with this God and what happens when God changes a people.